let's take a deep dive into the world of pharma manufacturing. Join us on a journey to explore innovations and recent trends by talking to our experts at Lonza, our partners and industry leaders. I am Martina Hesteritsova, and this is A View On, a podcast brought to you by Lonza. You may not have noticed since our podcast continued to be released as usual, but I took a break at the beginning of the year to focus on an entirely new challenge, at least for me, of becoming a mom. As I settle back into my role as a science communicator, I invite you to join us at a mid-season wrap-up. Let's head back and listen to some of the most fascinating moments of the season so far. We began our deep dive into the world of pharma manufacturing with a conversation about the starting point of all biopharmaceuticals, cell culture media. This liquid or gel designed to support the growth of cells outside of their natural environment can support the growth of various microbes, even human cells used in cell therapy. We asked Alexis Bossi, director of media R&D at Lonza, to explain how these complex solutions, vital for the survival of cells, are manufactured. Think about a huge soup pot to which you add a starting material of water. You put that in your big soup pot and you start stirring it. And then we add the salts and the buffers and get that into solution. And we want to make sure that we add ingredients in the right order so that for some ingredients, you need a high pH to get it into solution. Then we've reduced the pH to put the low pH ingredients in, get everything to dissolve appropriately, and then bring it to a neutral pH. Then we filter it to make sure that it is sterile and fill it into bags and bottles that our customers are going to use. Alexis also explained how cell culture media can be made to order based on the specific needs of the cells to be grown. Some customers come to us and say, just tell us the three media that you think will work for us. We'll test them all out ourselves. But very often customers will come to us and say, we've tried these different media. They work somewhat well, but we think we can get more robust growth, better function, something out of a change in the medium. And then we work with them to to develop the medium that works best for them, measuring all of the metabolic um, products that are coming out of those cells. It lets us really hone in on a medium that works very well for them specifically. And we'll evaluate the data that they have and then evaluate it in our own hands and say, hey, this is something we would like to work with. And then we collaborate with them on that process. In our second episode, we looked at challenges specific to the development of dry powders that are inhaled to locally treat respiratory diseases such as asthma, bronchitis, COPD, or cancer. Kim Shepard, Associate Director and Principal Engineer active in the field of particle engineering for inhalation delivery, argued that delivering treatments to the lung through an inhaled powder has countless advantages. You can provide something that's got good shelf stability while at the same time providing the right particle engineering to make sure that that drug is delivered exactly where it needs to go within the lung. Inhaled powders require a sophisticated and highly controlled manufacturing process. 
you can't make it with milling-based processes, which is another really common way to make dry powder inhalers. And then spray drying is kind of our specialty when we want to make these really tuned, specialized particles for kind of maximum performance. We also looked at the manufacturing process with Matt Ferguson, Alonza's head of respiratory drug delivery. It turns out that when developing and formulating drugs for inhaled delivery, one needs to keep in mind that the drug needs to also get out of the body. It gets into the lung and it, it's there too long and you end up with building up more and more of this medication in your lung. And so it's eventually you, you start forming granulomas and, and different things and your, your natural defense mechanisms in your lungs can't clear it. And it doesn't have the solubility to get across um, to be efficacious. So that's some of the formulation questions that we have to answer when we're developing a product and helping to turn it into a medicine. How do you resolve these issues for customers, though? And we do that through a number of different things. We do modeling to understand what the impact is going to be, um, try to do that as early as possible so we can make sure that we're going to be successful um, it leads into toxicology studies with animals to make sure that it's going to be safe before we dose it to people. And then something I, I've been interested in lately is mechanisms for active transport so that we can use the body's mechanisms to help deliver medication. Our third episode focused on cell and gene therapies. These transformative treatments are based on cells or genetic material extracted from patients or donors, altered and then used for highly personalized therapies that have long-lasting or life-altering and saving effects. Benam Ahmadian Bagbajarani, Executive Director of Cell Engine Therapy Process Development, introduced us to the topic of cell engine therapy and their use. Depending on the source of materials, the modality, the technology that is used to manufacture, but most importantly, the final product characteristics there could be a various type of diseases that could be treated with cell and gene therapies. Some of the main indications that we have focused on include different types of cancers and um, neurological disorders, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease. For example, also maybe neuropathic pain that is one of the devastating disorders that we've seen. Diabetes is a large focus, um, type 1, type 2 diabetes, heart failure, uh, and uh, a wide range of other diseases. Due to the complexity of cell and gene-based therapies, the manufacturing process has unique needs and challenges. So fundamentally, when it comes to manufacturing of cell and gene therapies, in particular in the case of cell therapies, you would often need to mimic the very complex cellular environment or biological events that would be controlled or happening inside the body, considering the complex cellular uh, events that might be happening within the culture. We need to carefully choose the type of the technology that we use to manufacture them, the type of measurement tools or analytics that we use to measure and analyze the cells in different steps of the process. Also, we need to make sure that we preserve the cells and we do not harm them. Next, we discussed injectable medical devices, such as pre-filled syringes for vaccine delivery or EpiPens and patch injectors. These devices offer amazing advantages for patients since they allow them to administer treatments in the comfort of their own home. Medical devices are 
I mean, it's a very broad definition because, of course, they can be a mixture of drug and device. They can also be implanted. They can also be used for performing examinations and diagnoses on patients, for instance. So it's a very broad range. That was Ian Thompson of Ipsomet, a company developing and manufacturing injection systems for self-medication. Ian also explained the uses of these medical devices. The main therapy areas where they are being investigated is really in those therapies like rare diseases, immuno-oncology, so for treating cancer. And we actually see the PET injectors replacing potentially also in the hospital setting. This means that the PET injector is potentially not only for use in the home environment, but also in the clinical and hospital environment to save on a lot of the disposable material that is required uh, for giving infusions in the in the clinic. Our fifth episode looked at highly potent compounds, which can elicit a pharmaceutical response at extremely low doses. While extremely useful from the manufacturing cost perspective, the manufacturing process has unique needs. A small amount of such compounds could elicit a reaction even in the manufacturing personnel. Charlie Johnson, Senior Director of Lanza Small Molecule Commercial Development, gave us an insight into which treatments can be considered highly potent. Somewhere between sort of 25 and 30% of all new chemical entities are highly potent. Traditionally, a lot of the highly potent APIs have typically been small molecules. Just to exemplify that a little bit, some of the traditional classes of highly potent APIs would include hormonal compounds such as gonadotrovin-releasing hormone agonists. Corticosteroids is another large class of HPAPI molecules. Steroidal hormones effectively produced in the adrenal glands, but many synthetic examples of that, things like cortisol and aldosterone. According to Charlie, this compound class is becoming more prevalent in the industry, mostly because of the tremendous benefits the use of such highly potent compounds bring. A patient is receiving less of a drug. It's maybe easier to to administer. And also focusing on oral delivery of drugs rather than intravenous delivery, which has historically been a feature of, of oncology therapy as well. From a manufacturing perspective, if you're producing less of a material, it's an advantage. It's more efficient. You're not using large equipment all the time. You're not using large volumes of um, reagents and solvents. It's a more sustainable, a more green approach to, to manufacturing. So I think there are a number of pressures that drive the path towards more and more HPAPIs. We will finish our mid-season wrap-up with a closer look at CAR-T-based therapies. These therapies are based on our own T-cells, white blood cells that help us fight infections. However, CAR-T-cells carry a CAR, so chimeric antigen receptor. It's designed to redirect the specificity of these killer cells so that they can become more apt at targeting disease cells, such as cancer cells, for example. Um, So what the CAR does in and of itself, it is a receptor that's designed to have two main functions. One is the ability to find the target. So it's got a portion of it on the outside of the cell, on the surface of the cell, that serves as a detector. Tamara Laskowski, Lonza Senior Director of Clinical Development in Personalized Medicine, explained the role these altered quote-unquote bionic T 
T-cells, play in fighting cancer. In some instances, researchers have also integrated novel genetic modifications along with CAR to make CAR T-cells even more potent, more persistent, so that they can fight the tumor for a longer time in the patient. I also spoke to Aya Jakobowicz, the founder, president and CEO of Edison Bio and the board member of Dorian Therapeutics, about CAR T-cell therapy manufacturing. You can engineer them as you want, and you can later really freeze it and have a cell bank with cells which are engineered to different targets for different indications, and it can be readily available for patients whenever they are being really diagnosed and ready to be treated. According to Aya, the future of CAR-T cell therapies is bright and exciting. I think that in the future, yes, People already are starting to generate non-viral methods to incorporate genes into the cell. I think that another improvement that you may be working out to make the viral engineering less costly, more accessible, and make it maybe more efficient, because it's likely that the two methods are going to be still applicable in the future. And with this, I'd like to thank you for listening to our mid-season wrap-up of A View On. You can already look forward to conversations about antibody-based therapies, health ingredients helping us move with ease, or even forensic science applied to pharma manufacturing. If you cannot wait, head over to lonza.com forward slash a-view-on to listen to our previous episodes, subscribe to never miss an episode, and access additional materials and interviewee info. Bye for now.